Welcome back to the Homeschool Advantage podcast. I'm your host, Bex Buzzy. To kick off the month of August, we have Andrew Pudawa, director and speaker of IEW Institute of Excellence in Writing. Andrew is a giant in the homeschool community. And in this episode, he brings such depth and knowledge. Andrew shares how homeschooling has changed, developed, and grown in the last 20 years. We get to learn about the beginning and legacy of IEW and his humble beginnings as a violin teacher. We will also be discussing the philosophy behind IEW's teaching methods, how IEW's strategies continue to be used by college and graduate students who studied IEW in their primary and secondary education, and what is truly important during the grade school years. This conversation was by far a five-star interview. So go grab your coffee, go grab your tea and a pen and paper because you're not going to want to miss what Andrew has to say. Let's get into the podcast. Welcome back to the Homeschool Advantage podcast. I'm your host, Bex Buzzy. And today we have Andrew Hudawa, a special guest. He is the principal speaker and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, IEW, as most of you know. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you, Bex. It's good to be with you today. Awesome. This interview, parents, is very special to me because I found that the mission that the IEW has and specifically in the homeschooling community are very similar in sentiment to what the homeschool podcast, the Homeschool Advantage podcast has. IEW, the Institute for Excellence of Writing, focuses on equipping teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials, which is which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. And here at the Homeschool Advantage podcast, our mission is also to equip teachers and parents by connecting them with curriculum developers and programs that will aid them in training their children. Our goal is to empower parents, especially those who are on the fence, to jump over into this education style and understand it is not that scary. It's not what you think. And you're not going to damage your child. In fact, your child will be by far will supersede their public school counterparts, especially by the time they reach high school and that there is so much support. So I do that by allowing you guys to hear directly from those who have invested their time, blood, sweat, and tears in creating these programs. And we just wanna thank you, Andrew. I'm so honored to have you on and to host you on today's episode. So first question, wanted to ask, now homeschooling, we know is the original source of education. That's the original way that we've educated. And with such a strong comeback now in the last couple of years for obvious reasons, how have you seen homeschool change and develop and grow in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, well, you know, we started homeschooling when uh, the oldest two girls in our family, uh, we ended up with seven children, but the oldest two were uh, 10 and eight, they had been going to kind of a little, I don't know, cottage school, you might say. It was in a, a woman's house and there were maybe a dozen kids, kind of Montessori style. It was, it was like one big 
homeschool basically, but then that ended and we just didn't have any good options. The public schools were not an option for us. The uh, private schools were pretty expensive for uh, me on a, a fairly meager violin teacher salary back then. Oh, wow. So we just, uh, you know, bit the bullet. My wife um, and I both had worked in schools, so we felt fairly confident. Although in retrospect, I think having uh, a degree in elementary education can be a little more of a handicap than a benefit when you try to do something different than the institution you're trying to not be like. Uh, so we started out and that would be uh, 97, uh, 99. Uh, and then, uh, well, 33 years later. So <laughs> what has changed? Well, certainly, um, the number of people homeschooling is, mm. is now, it's common. In fact, it's almost impossible to talk to anyone who doesn't know someone who's homeschooling. So it's become very ubiquitous. Everyone's aware of the idea. That was true even before the, the COVID year brought a whole lot of people into uh, that learning at home world. Uh, another thing, of course, are the curricular options. You know, mm. when people started 30 years ago, there were about two companies that maybe would sell you curriculum. Uh, they preferred to sell to schools, but here's these weird homeschoolers. Okay, we'll, we'll give you, you know, we'll, we'll sell it to you, but <laughs> type of attitude. Wow. And now, of course, if you go to a you know, a large convention, uh, it's very easy to get overwhelmed with how many and diverse are the homeschool curricula options. Uh, another thing that's changed is people's motive for homeschooling. Um, back in the beginning, uh, it was, I think, uh, in the high 90% of people were homeschooling for religious or moral reasons. They were looking at the what we used to condemn back then is the secular humanism that had had and was continuing to take over public education. And uh, while there are still a, a good number of people who come into homeschooling for that reason, probably constitutes um, less than a third total now. Other reasons that people choose to homeschool, um, special needs and special circumstances. Yeah. Realize that if they have a child who's got some some gifts or challenges or uh, twice exceptional, uh, the schools are not able to meet those needs. They can do that better at home. Uh, another, uh, certainly another reason for homeschooling is just the belief that parents have that they can do better than the public schools uh, or the private schools that are available. And uh, oddly, there's a whole category of people now who homeschool um, for the reason there's no better option. They, they don't necessarily choose to homeschool because they want the idea of being at home with their kids all day, every day, but they don't see any better options. And those people very often will you know, kind of shift over after a couple of years and say, oh, this is great. I would never go back. Uh, so there's quite a diversity of reasons as to why people uh, homeschool. And then, of course, you know, since the, uh, the pandemic period, 
there's even more things that have sprouted up, uh, things in the public school that, that would not have been imaginable 20 or 30 years ago, the critical race theory, the, the gender agenda of the radical progressives, uh, all things that are just causing not just Christian parents, but parents with common sense, parents who love their children, parents who are uh, aware and just say, I can't do that. I can't put my kids in that environment again. That's so true because it has become very dark, even for people who are not Christians, they are sensing that very like Oculus, you know, feeling within the school. And another thing that happened during COVID was parents started actually hearing what was being taught and they got wind of this and were like wait a second what's happening here and i really am so thankful for that because i think it was too like undercover for such a long time and i think parents just didn't realize or didn't think to even investigate deeper into what their kids were learning because they they trusted the the system and not realizing that yeah there is an agenda i've been a public school teacher 21 years and i don't think even teachers that are teaching realize the agenda but every you know but it's there and you can see it um and through COVID, i woke up believe it or not and i've been a christian for the same amount of time that i've been teaching mm. and i literally woke up and was like whoa i have been part of this system and not realizing how deep it does infiltrate into your brain so i'm really glad that you know it sounds kind of interesting that i'm going to say this but i'm kind of glad COVID happened because it opened a lot of people's eyes i'm sad at what has happened but you know what is happening now the exposure for everything is so important and valuable. And I, I wanted to just ask, like, do you feel now homeschooling is more within reach and attainable than it was, let's say 20, 30 years ago? Oh, absolutely. The, uh, you know, the support systems that exist, um, everything from you know, the, the number of homeschool co-ops that has just grown and exploded over the last decade, decade and a half, to uh, programs like classical conversations that are more formal, that have a, an economic system, a curriculum kind of laid out. Uh, hybrid schools are the fastest growing area of alternative education right now. And then, of course, online learning opportunities for, you know, kids of, of all ages, whether that's online live classes, whether it's video streaming or asynchronous classes, whether it's dual enrollment classes for high school age homeschool kids, which is one of the things I'm most excited about. Uh, and then, of course, just the myriad of curricula opportunities. So, uh, yes, uh, the the tools that are available to equip parents to be successful are so much more numerous and readily available. And those are in most cases connected with community. And I think it's in community where we really 
can start to get excited about what's happening. And if you're just homeschooling yourself and your kids in your home and you've got your husband who comes home from work and how's it going? Did the kids read, write and do math? Yes, yes, yes. But now it's, it's really different. In fact, a lot of homeschooling families find that they can easily overschedule themselves with co-op this day and extracurricular that day and a, you know, a, a trip with other families on this day. And, and so you almost have to, to go the opposite direction and, and start saying no to some of yeah. those things that might take you out of the home. Yeah. I love that you mentioned co-ops and, and hybrid schooling because I know a lot of parents want to be able to homeschool their children, but they work. And in those types of situations like co-ops and hybrid schools, there's an opportunity to like leave your child there for a, a period of time and then come back and pick them up and kind of even in micro schools to be able to swap with families and do that, which I think really brings um, not only a dynamics, but the opportunity to still be able to work if you have to at least part-time to be able to have your child in a you know in a in a homeschool type of system and you know i've told parents a lot of times because when i teach and my students let's say they are absent for like a week because they get sick and i have to catch them up i always tell parents it's not a real big deal if i'm talking to your child one-on-one -on -one because what i teach within a week i can do it within 30 to 60 minutes with your child and they're always blown away by that fact i'm like the reason is is i it takes me so long throughout the week is because i have so many different children and i have so many different learning styles i have so many different issues happening <laughs> and interruptions and things of that sort that if i'm just with your child i'm able to give him the meat and the, the just the meat right there i can take out the bones and give them you know exactly what they need and they learn it faster so I and that's why I also think homeschooling is so amazing because you're taking out all the other distractions and you're really able to build that relationship with your child. And I think that probably to me stands to be the most important thing that parents are building that relationship that they're taking back that aspect of their child's life education and they're building such a strong fabric and it it's it's going to build legacy in their in their life and speaking of legacy iew has a legacy starting back from the 1930s all the way to you can you take us to that history and from what it was you know to where it is now and why it began in the development of what IEW is today? Well, yeah, it's a long story, but very briefly, uh, there was uh, a woman named Mrs. Anna Ingham who created a program called the Blended Soundsight Program of Learning. And uh, this was a early uh, grade one reading, writing, multi-sensory um, phonics-based approach, activity-based approach to teaching. And uh, she was just an incredible, incredible woman. She uh, developed this in that early part of the 1900s. And then in the later part of the 1900s, she and a small team of people, uh, among them her 
daughter, Shirley George, and her nephew, Dr. James Webster, uh, taught this in Alberta and Saskatchewan in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I came on board. Uh, they'd been doing it for a long time. I met them all in 1990. Uh, my wife and I were both working for a small private school in Montana. One of the teachers was a Canadian who said, oh, you've got to come up and take this class. It's a fantastic course. It was a, a two-week teacher training course. And so uh, I did. I met Dr. Webster, learned the Structure and Style and Composition program, uh, came back, uh, used it in the school where we were working at that time, uh, thought, wow, there's a lot more to learn. So I went back the next year and took that same two-week teacher training course again, came back, uh, we shifted over, moved to uh, a different city. I did some tutoring and teaching my own kids around that time. And then uh, started doing this uh, again and again. And uh, they kept, you know, I, I kept going back every summer. They said, well, if you're going to keep going back, you might as well just join our team and help us teach this. <laughs> so uh, I, um, I kind of informally joined their staff and went back um, almost every year for about a decade. Wow. And then in uh, 1995, I decided to try and do a seminar on the writing program that I had learned from the Canadians years before. And uh, it was in Seattle. I was um, full-time teaching violin and kinder music. I was a music teacher, but I was looking for the side gig. I was looking for the thing that I could possibly do to make enough money to afford to still be a violin teacher. Wow. And um, so I got 20 people to pay $40 to listen to me talk for one day. And I thought, well, this has potential. <laughs> so um, I did that again and again and again. And then by uh, 99, um, I, was, I was doing better. Uh, running around teaching writing seminars and selling uh, videotapes, VHS, if you're old enough to remember those. I remember those. <laughs> um, and so uh, selling tapes and teaching seminars so that then in, in 99, uh, I went full time into IEW and it's just taken off from there. And now we've got, I don't know, 50 some employees and customers all over the world and it is way, way, way bigger than I ever would have imagined. And uh, I'm still in touch with the Canadians. They're, they're all, well, Mrs. Ingham has passed on, but uh, her daughter, Shirley, and um, her nephew, uh, Dr. Webster, he's 93, 94 right now. Wow. I think, and uh, still kicking. I, I used to go and visit him every year or sometimes more often. Uh, but I haven't been able to get into Canada since the, the COVID began. And so I don't know uh, if or when I'll even see him again. But uh, I am working hard to continue their legacy and keep that striving for excellence and a high quality of uh, language arts instruction going on. And we, you know, we work mostly with homeschoolers, but we've got client schools and school districts and uh, Catholic schools and classical schools, hybrid schools all over the country also using the structure and style materials. Yeah, the I interviewed someone actually who has her own academy and she uses your um, 
actually two academies, right? I work with one academy, Awaken Academy, and then the other academy, Willow Ridge Academy. They use uh, IEW. And, you know, there, there are a lot of language art programs out there and methods of study. How did IEW become the gold standard of language arts? <laughs> well, I, I like to think that's true. We still do have some competitors there, which is good. But I think one of the things that differentiates us from pretty much everyone else out there, well, two things I'll mention. The first thing is, is that we really focus on the parent and teacher training. We, we put a lot of effort into helping the person who's going to teach understand our system fully. So we don't just, you know, sell curriculum, here's workbooks, throw them at your kids, uh, they'll learn something. Um, I come from a background of teaching music. And so in, in my thinking, teaching writing is a whole lot more like teaching music than really any other academic subject. And one of the distinctives of Suzuki Method, which I was a Suzuki Method violin uh, teacher, was to uh, teach the parent. And so uh, rather than have a, a young child come to me and give them a lesson and expect them to go home and remember what to do, you know, the child and the parent would come, the parent would uh, actually get a little bit of a lesson on how to play that piece of music on the violin and then know what to do each day practicing with their child at home. So uh, having parental involvement in the whole process uh, is, is very, very significant for us. The second thing is that we do use uh, what many people might call a classical approach um, you know, I'm a little bit wary of being labeled that because there are so many classical curriculums that have, um, in some cases, some rather obscure of vocabulary attached with how they're teaching, you know, the trivium and grammar logic and rhetoric and the canons of rhetoric and all that. We, we do that, but, but it's more in a way that is very, very accessible to everyone. So we don't have that kind of esoteric vocabulary. Instead, we begin with a system based on imitation. So we, we don't expect children to just, you know, kind of, well, let's say that you, you taught in the public schools. So you, okay. you know, the way it's been going for a few decades is that they kind of think, well, if we give, give children paper, give them lots of opportunity, give them lots of you know, good examples by cheerleading them into reading lots of books. Somehow there'll be a transfer and they will want to express themselves on paper. And this is creativity. And that's how we cultivate good writing skills. Well, that's been the dominant philosophy in schools for about 40 years. And the results are, that we have almost a super majority in almost every major city and a majority in almost every state of students who are below proficient in writing skills. So, you know, what do we do about that? Well, that, that's where the schools either give up or they adopt something that goes back before creativity was the god and we had an understanding of the importance of developing basic skills through 
a system of imitation and a concrete pathway. Learn this, then you can learn this, then you can learn this, then you can learn this. And, you know, people will come up to me and say things like, well, you know, I just want my child to be able to express himself on paper. And, you know, I kind of try to back that up a little bit and say, I'm not sure that's a good goal. Writing is not about expressing yourself. Writing is about expressing ideas. And, you know, if you're lucky and you live long enough, you might have an original idea worth expressing. But for the most part, it's about taking in information and the combination and permutation of ideas and re-expressing previously existing ideas in a particular way for a particular audience. And that's really what the whole world does with writing most of the time. They do it with all the arts of language. So sometimes that's a little bit of a, you know, adjustment for parents who came through a public system and they have this idea that it's all about creativity and self-expression. So uh, we do end up seeing children who feel like they are having a great time with creativity and self-expression, but I'm not sure the way to get there is to have that as your immediate goal. I agree because I was a product of that very lacking language arts system. When I got to college, college, mind you, college, my per and I was a biology and chemistry major mm. and I had to write reports and my teacher looked at my paper and said, I don't know what happened to you. <laughs> it's just like that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, your writing is the writing of like a seventh grader. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, he's like, if, if even that much, he's like, I have to grade your grammar. He goes, your content is amazing. You have, to, you have amazing, amazing content but you cannot write it. And I'm like, oh. So I had to go through remedial English, which still didn't help me. I didn't learn to write until, believe, and I'm gonna be very honest, my first three years of teaching where I had to imitate all of the people that I was writing my lessons from. Like I had to rewrite what they wrote to be able to have a good life. And then it began to click. And I was like, oh, and now I'm a really good writer. But that didn't happen until my 30s. That is crazy, right? It's crazy. And now I've, you know, I've been teaching, like I said, 21 years. And now it's like, wow, all that time where I could have learned writing back then but again it's i'm passed on passed through passed through passed through and no real um you know just no real education in that area honestly because how do you make it to college and still have a middle school barely a middle school writing you know and then yeah. have to go through that like that it was an embarrassment you know i was highly embarrassed <laughs> getting into college, you know, being told that. So I, I, I applaud you guys for, you know, taking that stance and understanding, literally looking into what it takes to be a good writer 
and putting it out there and letting parents know, hey, you know, I get what you're com- where you're what you're saying, but you're coming from the wrong mindset in a sense. I don't know how else to say it or the mindset that's actually not going to allow your child to, you know, get to a writing place or a place of of expression that is going to benefit them in college or, you know, even just in, in life itself, right? And there's been so many people that I've known who have told me that they just, they couldn't write, they couldn't write, they couldn't write, and all came from the public school system. And that really should not be, right? Like, you should be able to graduate high school with at age level writing, or well, at least. <laughs> you know, the schools have, ever since I got going in this 30 years ago, um, you know, the schools have been attempting to create standards. And I remember, you know, uh, pretty early in the game, 96, 97, I was contacted by schools in the state of Washington um, because they had these Washington Assessment of State Learning Standards, WASLs. And they had used a system called the Six Traits Writing Assessment Model. And they were trying to teach this in the classroom, but it wasn't working very well. And so they you know, contacted me. I did work with, with Washington and Alaska because they were pushing standards very hard. And what, what, they, you know, what I could see very clearly is that you can't just keep doing the same thing and expecting to get different results. You know, I often make this analogy and say, if we had taught music in this country, the way we've taught, sorry. Yeah, if we've taught music in this country, the way we've taught writing for the past 40, 50 years, it'd be kind of like this. Yeah, come on over to my place. I'll teach you to play the piano. Uh, I'll teach all the names of the notes and how to press the keys and even the pedals. But there is one little rule here. You can't play anything that anyone else ever played. You have to kind of make it all up on your own. You have to just express yourself and be creative and just go home and do that for half an hour a day for the next four years and you'll learn to play something. There's truth to that. You will learn to play something. But when you compare that with the way we teach music, which is play this piece, play it in this way, imitate me precisely. We're on a graded, uh, a graded program of increasingly difficult technique. And we'll do that for a few years. And then on the foundation of basic skills, let's talk about you know, interpretation or improvisation or composition, the creative side of it. But what we see, and we see this in fine arts, in music, we see it in writing, we, you know, we see it in pretty much any discipline that if you want to reach a high level of mastery, you have to have basic skills uh, that are gained by imitation. And so that's kind of the, the point of conflict between the modern mentality, which says imitation is a big, uh, you know, is it the opposite, the enemy of creativity versus imitation being the foundation of creativity. So our whole system kind of goes back to, uh, you know, a few hundred years or a couple thousand years ago where rhetoric was taught, writing and communication skills were taught 
by taking something that had been already existing and then using that and representing that and honing the skills in that way before trying to stress this idea of originality and creativity. So philosophically, you know, that's kind of where, where we are. What type of student can benefit from the IEW program? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have not yet really met a student who doesn't. Um, I've had very high talented kids, kids that come in writing very well, loving writing, um, are able to, you know, just do it with relative ease. And our system of models and checklists seems to be like jet fuel for that type of kid. And it allows them even greater mastery. But I've also had kids who could barely read, you know, so dyslexic, disorganized, aid, you know, attention issues, all sorts of things. And because our system takes the complicated process of writing and breaks it into very small manageable steps, uh, those kids make excellent progress too. So what I've noticed is, you know, a lot of approaches, whether it's in a, you know, a, a school or a particular curriculum, sometimes you have this aptitude difference between the kids who can do something they're apt it's, they have kind of a natural ability for it and kids who don't. And, you know, you do almost anything. Those kids are going to get better and better. These kids are not. Whereas with our system, everybody gets better. And actually the aptitude range uh, tends to shrink between, you know, the very competent and the ones who are less apt in the beginning. And of course, my, my greatest joy, and it happens frequently, is when I get a, a letter from you know, a mom, or sometimes I'll meet a student who will uh, come up to me and say, hey, I did your writing program 10 years ago, and then I went to college, and I got A's on all my papers, and now I'm, you know, in a graduate degree in this or that, and I still use the keyword outlines and checklist ideas, you know, wow. so I know that it has power, and it sticks. That's amazing. That's such a great testimony. Thank you for sharing that. So as we're wrapping it up, uh, what is the call to action? Where can they get resources for IEW and connect with your, yeah, all your resources? Well, we obviously have a website as everyone does, IEW.com. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of free information there. Uh, one thing that I am particularly happy about is our library of podcasts. Um, it's called The Arts of Language Podcast. And I've done, I don't know, I think we're up to 300 some episodes, maybe more by now. So uh, we've got quite a, quite a library available. We also have free lessons. So if someone wanted to try out the first few steps in our writing uh, program, uh, or our grammar materials, Fix It Grammar, or our spelling program, uh, you can go to IEW.com slash free hyphen lessons. And there's all sorts of options. Most of our stuff is not grade specific. I'm, I'm actually kind of uh, opposed to attaching age and grade. I think that's one of the uh, kind of disordered and disordering things that public schools have done to us is to say that 
you know, just because a child is a certain age, they have to be doing a certain grade level work. As, as you know, you could have kids in a classroom all born on the same day, and there'd still be three to four grade levels of variation in their aptitude when it comes to reading or writing or math or music or art. Absolutely. So we're, we're very general. So we have level A, and I always say, well, that's grade three to five reading level, plus or minus a little bit, uh, and level <laughs> B and level C. And uh, one thing I'm, I'm particularly excited about is our high school structure and style for students course has just been approved for two semesters of university college level credit uh, wow. through, through an organization called uh, Christian Halls International, which is um, a group that I uh, really, I like what they're doing a lot, trying to set up kind of uh, study groups of teenagers uh, who will, you know, mostly homeschool teenagers who enroll in uh, university level courses, get an opportunity to read and talk about that stuff together, but then can bank up college credits while they're still high school age. And uh, I would say your, your average homeschooled, high schooled, homeschooled 15-year-old student, your average 15-year-old homeschool kid probably reads better, writes better, and knows math facts better than the average 19-year-old high school college-bound graduate. So, uh, you know, the, the colleges have had to lower standards. And at, at this point, most homeschool kids could walk in and read and write circles around those other kids. So why not take that opportunity? Um, I know any number of students who finished high school with two, three, or even four years of college credits. I believe it. Um, you know, by the age of 18 or 19. So that's one of the better options I think that exist now. And, and almost all of the Christian or Catholic uh, private schools uh, offer these dual enrollment options for homeschool kids. They love homeschool kids. Why? Because they read what they're supposed to read and they write decently well and they know their math facts. And, and guess what? They like to learn and they'll put in effort especially when compared with so many of the kids who come out of high school with the attitude, well, the reason you go to college isn't to learn stuff, it's to party for more years and get a degree so you get a better paying job eventually. So the whole mentality of homeschoolers is just so refreshing to so many, <coughs> so many college and university level teachers. I agree with you so much. So we have two minutes and I have one more question to ask you. Maybe we can log off and log back on because I have one more question. Okay, sure. Yeah, because I'm running out. I have two minutes. All right, log off, log back on. All right. Okay. So as we are wrapping up, Andrew, it's been such a pleasure having you on and just hearing all of your wisdom, all of your expertise and your experience. Is there one big takeaway you would like to leave parents with from our conversation today? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of people come into homeschooling and part of what motivates them is either avoiding something in the schools or doing something better. 
for their own children than is possible in the schools. And a lot of it has to do with academics in their mind. And, you know, one of the things about being old and having all of my children grown up and all of my daughters who have school aged children are homeschooling their own children. But in retrospect, it's it's easier to see clearly that academics is probably one of the least important things about growing up. Yes, we care. We want our kids to be able to read and write and do math and have general knowledge and be good citizens and have a foundation for their faith and all of that. And that's all kind of in in that world of academic stuff. But if you look back in your childhood and and I look back in my childhood and I look back in my children's childhood, probably most of the most formative experiences the things that really mattered that they carried into adulthood that are that help really make them who they are in a big way are not connected with the academic side of either homeschooling or growing up it's really much more about relationship it's much more about uh, learning together um test scores and grades and transcripts are a, a dumb game that the world put together to try and sort people into categories so they could be manipulated and controlled more easily. And I don't give much value to all that because it's just an artifact. It doesn't mean, a transcript doesn't mean you learned anything. It just means you did time in a certain way. So I would say, you know, this to homeschool parents, you know, pray hard, make your decisions based on what you see are the priorities for each student at each time, uh, and do a lot of stuff together. And don't get trapped into this doing school at home. Don't try to recreate the institution you're trying to escape. Uh, instead, um, look at each child as having their individual talents and genius and strengths and challenges and, you know, cultivate and nourish, nurture them as best you can, because in the end, um, it's it's who they are. It's their character. It's their their spiritual self that will make the biggest difference in what they do after they leave home. Um, you know, one of the things I, I read a book, I found it a very, very dangerous book, and I'm I'm hesitant to even mention it to anyone because it's so, so radical. But it's called Raising Them Right by a guy named Theophan the Recluse. And his argument was that the sole end of the education um, of a Christian is the cultivation of appetites. And it's you know, when you think about it, when you leave home, it's what your desires are, what you want, what are you going to, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And so if we can cultivate in our children an appetite for following Christ by living a life of service and selflessness and, and surrender to God's will, and even making sacrifices for others 
that's going to be the spiritual depth that will help them really do God's will in their lives. Um, and, and everything else, what grades and what subjects and what college you go to and everything else is really secondary or peripheral to that in my view. So, you know, keeping keeping the right focus and, uh, you know, I would say keep listening to people like you who oh. are out there creating these conversations where people will be reminded of the most important things on a daily basis. Wow. Thank you, Andrew. That was amazing. And I just want to agree there because, you know, I remember me going to school and, um, graduating college and I really worked hard. I got A's and I, you know, I almost even graduated honors except my bio, my biochemistry class, <laughs> but I really worked hard. And I remember leaving, not feeling fulfilled, still feeling something is missing. There's just something still missing in my life. And you're right. It wasn't until I did give my heart over to the Lord. It wasn't until I did give my life over to service, to give my life over to something larger than me and servicing other people and building relationships and building those types of connections. It's not until then that maybe everything I learned even made any difference because by itself it was nothing. It wasn't until I was actually had, like you said, spent time with people, built, did fun things, had relationships and, you know, really lived my life and had the other things second that life really didn't make didn't have more meaning now so it, it's it's such a true statement that you made i'm thankful that i'm very thankful that you you highlighted it because i think that's something that maybe we don't think about but we all feel it we just don't know how to articulate that or we don't even think to articulate it because yes we live in a system that highlights and champions the wrong things i believe when we champion other people we champion family, we champion relationships and proper education and all of that under the umbrella of the Lord, we really do have a fulfilling life. And, and those things are so much more easily cultivated in the home. And so the more time we have with kids in the home, the more likely we're going to be able to cultivate those lifetime you know, Christian core values and priorities. So, and and I guess one last little thing I'd say is, you know, so many other families may just be waiting for the invitation, right? Mm. Just come join us, come to a convention with us, come over to our home for a day, see how we live, because we need to help actually, I think, rescue more people from a system that is increasingly dysfunctional, disordering, and harmful to children in our country today. So keep up your good work there. Yay, awesome. Yep, there it goes. Welcome, people come. Come to the homeschooling arena. You'll never regret it. Thank you again, Andrew. It was great having you on today. My pleasure. God bless you.
You've been listening to the Homeschool Advantage podcast, where you get the scoop on all the latest vendors that fit your lifestyle. Thanks for listening. Also, follow me wherever you listen to your podcast to stay up to date on the next episode. You can also visit my website where the episodes will be and for my free lesson plan course, which can help you if you have different vendors and you're wondering, how do I make them all flow together? Let me help you with that. And if you're a vendor and you think you would like to be on the podcast, send me an email realedtalk at gmail.com. Leave me your name, contact, website, and I'll get back to you. Thanks for stopping in with me and I'll see you on the next time. <laughs>